So good to see all of you. We are on question six this morning of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. There are lessons in the back on that stand back there. Uh, question six of the catechism asks, how many persons are there in the Godhead? Uh, reading through uh, Charnock's, Stephen Charnock, the Puritan, his work on the existence and attributes of God. And in the reading this morning, he talks about how when Scripture reveals God, it does so by way of affirmation, declaring to us the things that are about God, and then also by way of negation, those things which are not of God. So you think about the way God reveals himself. When God says that he is holy, it is affirming an attribute of who he is, but also of what he's not. He is not unholy. Right? So when we talk about uh, the persons of the Godhead, we are affirming what Scripture reveals, but also rejecting what Scripture does not reveal regarding the Trinity. It asks the question, how many persons are there in the Godhead? And the answer is, we'll read together in a moment, but the answer is that there are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Whatever the stuff is, and God is spirit, but whatever that is in terms of his essence or substance, whatever God is, he is in three persons. So they do not each hold one third of the divinity. Okay, that would be a tritheism. All right, they are not an iteration of one deity. That would be um, modalism, right? God revealing himself in, in modes. But instead, what the catechism is telling us is laying out for us in a simple statement the doctrine of Trinity that there is one God in three persons. They are equal in power and in glory. So let's uh, respond together. I'll ask the question and we can read together. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you have revealed yourself to us. You have condescended down to save sinners such as we. And this you have done, not to your shame, but to your glory. We thank you for your grace and mercy and the manner in which you have revealed yourself to us. Be with us now in our Sunday School lesson as we study this topic of eschatology. May it be edifying to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The lesson this morning is on the Puritan's optimistic eschatology. What is eschatology? Eschatology is the study of last things, or you might say study of end times. Chapter 48 of this, uh, this massive work by Beakey and Jones regarding Puritan theology is entitled the City on a Hill, the American Puritan's Optimistic View of the End Times. Here's a quote here 
There, that being the American Puritans, their unwavering hope was that New England could be what England was not, a place to cultivate a uniquely Christian society, which they called a city on a hill. This hope fueled their eschatological expectations. The Puritans did not conceive of the end times only in abstract theological terms, but saw themselves moving through history toward its final consummation. And what we'll see here in a moment, what's, what, what is going to unfold here is that the American Puritans, as they were settling the new world here in the, Mer- the Americas, saw that as connected to the end times. That's essentially the premise of the lesson. And they viewed it in pretty much an optimistic way, that what they were doing was part of essentially ushering in the return of Christ. So that's, that's what this lesson is about. Uh, they're establishing America as a city on a hill, as a shining light to the world. So let's consider this question first. How should our historical context affect our interpretation of Scripture? How does the world in which we live in, how should the world in which we live in impact the way that we understand the teaching of Scripture? What, Dave? It shouldn't. Okay. Our understanding of Scripture should interpret how we see history. Okay. You go back to what you know. God is sovereign and God is good. Uh-huh. And that impacts your view of history. Uh-huh. Anyone else? Sir? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Josh? In Revelation. Yeah. Yeah. What happens if we completely divorce our historical context from biblical interpretation? What happens if they exist in absolutely two separate worlds? The scripture has no bearing for us in the way we live. 
Uh, there's a, a famous book on preaching by John Stott called Between Two Worlds, and he describes the preacher's responsibility as, uh, it's, an, it's an outdated uh, illustration, but you'll get the point. He holds the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other hand. What happens if we completely merge our historical context into biblical interpretation? Then you're trying to figure out when Christ is going to return, and you're jumping the gun on me, Bobby, but that's, that's a good answer. Uh, so let's look at some of the challenges in Puritan eschatology is, number one, a lack of historical research on the topic. Number two, a tendency to impose modern categories onto the Puritans, like premillennialism, postmillennialism, or amillennialism. Uh, the Puritans didn't really have such categories. And so premillennialism being the view that uh, Christ returns before the millennium, postmillennialism being the view that Christ returns after the millennium, and amillennialism being the view that uh, what? Awe is a negation. So uh, it's probably not a great name for the view. Um, it's not no millennialism, but I like the, the term realized millennialism, that we're, that we're living in the millennium now. And also one of the other challenges of this is that there are a variety of views among the Puritans on eschatology. So it's not really true to say that all the American Puritans were post-millennial. That's, that's not actually true. Not all of them were post-millennial. Um, they had a variety of views. And even those who tended toward a strong post-millennialism, some of them, like Edwards, was very optimistic in his view of the end times. And then others, like uh, the Mathers, were very negative in their view regarding the end times. So it's, there's a variety of views among the Puritans, and it's not so simple as simply saying, well, the Puritans were post-mill. Uh, that's, that's not really enough. But what they were unified in doing is recasting Augustinian eschatology. Okay, now we've really waded deep into the waters here. Fancy words like Augustinian eschatology. What do we mean by Augustinian? Who are, refer who are we referring to? Augustine. We're referring to Augustine, and specifically Augustine's work in his book called City of God. And in City of God, Augustine talks about the millennium, and he identifies it, in short, as the reign of Christ inaugurated at his resurrection, and that that period of Revelation 20 extends from the resurrection until the end of the world. Essentially, it was Augustine's view that, that the millennium of Revelation 20 referred to the present church age from the resurrection of Christ until he returns. That was Augustine's view. Heidi? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Would that change 
Yeah, yeah. So some of them. No, no, no. It's a great question. So some of them, some of them would have seen the millennium as a figurative period of time in the future. And some of them would have seen it as a literal 1000 year period to take place in the future. Okay. And so there was a variety of views on how they understood it. Huh? It wasn't dead set, but what they were doing was reacting against Augustine's view regarding the millennium that had been established since the fourth century, essentially, right? Uh, there are four main schools of interpreting the book of Revelation, and I'm going somewhere with this, all right? I'm laying a foundation to help us have a good conversation and a good study about this. Four main views in the study of the book of Revelation, and number one is to read Revelation from a futurist perspective. This is the oxygen in American evangelical preaching today. It comes from men like John Hagee with his massive charts. You ever seen John Hagee on TV and he's got these massive charts that are like bigger than the wall of uh, the end times? He reads Revelation with a futurist perspective. You also see it with men. Not all of them are like John Hagee. I'm not trying to uh, caricaturize all of them. Men like David Jeremiah, Dr. David Jeremiah. I have great respect for Dr. David Jeremiah. I don't agree with him theologically on everything, but he would understand Revelation, all of Revelation, as something future, completely future that is to unfold in the life of the church. There's also then a view called preterism. Preterism is the view that revelation, rather than it to be fulfilled in the future, preterism is the view that it's been fulfilled already in the past. All right. And so uh, the fall of Jerusalem, uh, the, uh, the fall of the Roman Empire, right? They would look back and see revelation as being fulfilled much in the same way that we would read Daniel and we would see Daniel as being fulfilled in the period of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and the Greeks and the Romans in that whole historical period that Daniel and his vision outlays we look back at Daniel and say that's been fulfilled in history the preterists would take the same view of the book of Revelation and they would say Revelation has already been fulfilled. There's also another view called idealism. Idealism is more Augustinian and it sees revelation as just the timeless epic of the church's struggle in this present evil age. And then there is the view of the Puritans. The view of the Puritans is a historicist reading of the book of Revelation. Hold that thought. We come back to that. Let's read Revelation 20, 1 through 6. Revelation 20, 1 through 6. Danielle, while you're all turning there, Revelation 20. Danielle, yeah. Mm hmm. The, the preterist sees all of Revelation fulfilled, and the historicist sees it all to... Oh, we haven't touched on history. I haven't told you yet. All right, so hold that thought. Okay? I haven't told you yet. 
Revelation 20, 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. There's the millennium, a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Until the thousand years were ended, after that he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So this is the passage in question. How do you view the thousand years? Is it something to take place in the future? Is it something that has been fulfilled at some point in the past? Is it something that we are living in today? Or is it something to take place in the future as events in Revelation are unfolding before us? And this is where the Puritans settled. The Puritans understood Revelation. They interpreted the signs of the times and the unfulfilled prophecies of the Old and New Testaments within their own historical context. So when they read Daniel and Revelation, they looked at their newspapers, figuratively, their newspapers, and they understood Revelation to be happening in their day, in their time, in the world in which they lived in. And it's understandable, right, why they lived or with such a view. This is a time historically of great turmoil, also of great progress as well. The Reformation has happened. Um, the Church of England has been reformed, some. But there's also been persecution. Right? So it's easy to understand why they would be viewing history that way. They held to something called mediate prophecy, a view called mediate prophecy. It's described there on page two. Mediate prophecy is not the revelation of new truth from God, but the spirit-enabled interpretation of biblical prophecies and application of those prophecies to unfolding history. So mediate prophecy is the view, not that a person receives new truth, but that a person receives, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the ability to interpret history from biblical prophecy. Scripture plays the central role, which explains why the cessation of immediate prophecy. So you think about the prophets, thus saith the Lord. They're receiving immediate prophecy. 
They viewed that to have ceased. However, they did not feel that it had nullified the availability of insight into the future. So even though immediate prophecy had ceased, no longer did God speak to prophets like he spoke to Moses face to face. But there was still some sort of gift of prophecy that continued beyond the apostolic age, is what many of the Puritans would hold to. By using scripture, believers find all they need to make fallible predictions about their own times. Some of you are scratching your heads. What, wait, what do you mean? Fallible predictions of their own times. They were, in essence, doing something we would call reading into providence. What does it mean to read into providence? Victor. Mm -hmm. Who's who was the author? Okay. Identity to persons identified in the book of Revelation. But this is not, this sounds strange to us, but even as someone as influential as Charles Hodge, if you go back and read Hodge's Systematic Theology, big three volumes of his lectures, Hodge has like 10 pages on why he thinks that the Pope is the Antichrist, the literal fulfillment of the Antichrist. So, Clinton was, who said that? <laughs> what, what is the danger of reading into Providence? What's the danger of that, Josh? Thinking we understand God's plan more than we do, whether that be successes or difficulties. We might go through a trial and say, oh, well, because I'm going through this trial, it's not the Lord's will for me to do X. Or some people might say, because I'm going through a trial, it is the Lord's will for me to do X. Right? The benefit of reading into Providence is that you see all things as ordered by the Lord under his sovereignty and working all things out for his good, for our good and for his glory. So let's look at some of the historical context. Sir? Yeah, that, that is the problem, right? The, the question is, does our own agenda, our own biases, impact the way that we read into providence? And I would say 100% percent 
Absolutely true. Yes. And that is one of the reasons why it is so dangerous to read into providence. Why? You're not an infallible interpretation of God's sovereign plan that is unfolding. Why do we? Let's look at the Puritans. Let's, let's look at the Puritans. Let me help answer this question from the Puritans. Number one, I want you to see here on page two, the socio-political atmosphere in England. The Reformation has happened. Uh, England has become Protestant. The Church of England has been established. And then Queen Mary I ascends to the throne. And her nickname was Bloody Mary. And her whole thing that she is wanting to do, rather than having a Church of England, she is wanting to do what? Make England Roman Catholic again. That's what she's wanting to do. She want, that's her campaign slogan, make England Roman Catholic again. And so she begins to persecute uh, the preachers and teachers and pastors of the Church of England, and many of them flee. She is also exerting her influence over Scotland as well. And there are wars being fought over this. Will Scotland be Roman Catholic again? So the, the Puritans read into this an act of God's providence. After Queen Bloody Mary, Queen Elizabeth I comes to the throne. Her act of supremacy declares her or the, the office, the monarchy, to be the governor of the established church. And then in the act of uniformity, she makes the Book of Common Prayer mandatory for all public services. Now, there was a variety of ways in which this was carried out historically. Some people, uh, some monarchs carried this out ruthlessly, and some of them did not. However, these acts motivated the Puritans to seek hope in a new England. They wanted to seek hope in a new England. So what do they do? They leave. They, they leave England and come over into the new world. So let's look at some of the writings here, some of the writers and writings who were, we would call them millenarian. Sorry for all the, the $5 words this morning. Uh, millenarianism is the belief that the thousand-year period of Revelation 20 will be fulfilled literally on earth and in the future. All right? That's the view of millenarianism. Some of the influential writers, men like Thomas Brightman, who wrote a book called A Revelation of Revelation. He saw the uh, seven churches of Revelation 2 through 3 as seven periods of church history. And then Revelation lays out the unfolding of, of history in the church and culminates in Revelation 20, including the millennium and the new Jerusalem that follows after the millennium in Revelation 22. The first resurrection mentioned in Revelation 20 figuratively represented, quote, the Reformation's revival of biblical preaching and sound theology. There's the historicism right there. 
There's the reading into providence, okay? So they would read the first resurrection mentioned in Revelation 20 as, how did they understand it? Well, that was the Reformation's preaching. The millennium was the time between 1300 and 2300, during which period the Reformation would crush the enemies of the church, particularly the papacy, and the conversion of the Jews would brighten the world. So you see the historicism, reading historical events into the book of Revelation as they were unfolding. Joseph Mead, in his work, The Key of Revelation, as it was translated in English, many consider him to be the father of modern-day premillennialism. He disagreed with Brightman about the timing of the millennium, but agreed with the optimism and viewed it as something that would happen in the future. He saw the millennium as a period for the church marked by, quote, peace and security from the persecution and sufferings of former times. Sir. Why not pick 1300? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what, how he picked that. Brightman influenced Mead, and Mead influenced the English Puritans in their understanding of the end times. And they were pretty much united in this. They saw the Pope as the Antichrist and Revelation predicting the downfall of the Roman Catholic Church, the conversion of the Jews, and the latter-day glory of the church in the New Jerusalem. A return of the Jews to Jesus their Messiah, their return to the promised land, ushering in the millennium, and that Christ would resurrect martyrs and inaugurate the reign of saints on the earth. It's kind of a, a golden period in history, by the way. And this is common. There, there are many people in the Presbyterian church who have a post-millennial view of the end times, by the way. Very common. So where would the Puritans look for these expectations to be fulfilled? Well, they would look to New England. They would look to the establishment of the New World. And they saw themselves on a divine mission from God in establishing the New World. Thomas Morton wrote, I will now discover a country whose endowments are by learned men allowed to stand in parallel with the Israelites' Canaan which none will deny to be a land far more excellent than old England in her proper nature. So in his view, the, Purit the American Puritans were like Israelites settling in the promised land. William Twist wrote to Joseph Mead and wrote that America could be the, quote, New Jerusalem, identified at the end of, book of, of the book of Revelation. John White proposed that God had chosen the English to settle New England and prosper there as a counterweight to the Antichrist empire created by Spain elsewhere in the Americas. <laughs> so you see how they're reading into history. Edward Johnson, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, all you the people of Christ that are here oppressed, imprisoned, and scurriously derided, gather yourselves together, your wives and little ones, and answer to your several names as you shall be shipped 
for his service in the Western world where you are to attend the service of the King of Kings. They saw themselves as doing the Lord's work, ushering in the return of Christ by settling the new world. John Cotton uh, preached a sermon on 2 Samuel 7.10, calling his congregation to consider if they would be pilgrims settling in the new Jerusalem, that they would be a new kind of Israelite. He wrote about Revelation 13. He viewed the first beast as the Roman Catholic Church and the second beast, the papacy, and essentially viewed the millennium as the golden age to come in which the reign of Christ would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So you can see the, the optimism that was there. Essentially, the new world gave the Puritans a chance to do in England what could, in New England, what could not be done in England. Setting up a new Jerusalem, a shining city on a hill. In biblical history, what happens to shining cities on hills? They get set on fire. They're, they're a shining light on a hill because they're set on fire. Yeah, what happens to Israel after the height of King Solomon? They go all the way up to the heights under King Solomon, and then what happens? It all falls away. And sadly, this is the story of what began to happen for the American Puritans in the New World. The Mathers men, Richard Increase Mathers and Cotton Mathers, grandfather, father, and son, all preachers, all Puritans, had a negative view of what was unfolding. Richard viewed the conversions among the Native Americans as a sign the millennium was at hand. Increase, his son, cautioned against reading into God's providential judgment into certain tragic events like the London fire. However, he eventually became convinced that Christ's second coming was imminent. Why? Because things were getting so bad. Cotton Mathers, unlike other Puritans who were simply content to say we're living in the end times, Cotton Mathers began to make predictions and chronological projections. He predicted 1697 as the date for the Antichrist's final defeat. He was wrong. He later predicted 1716. He was wrong. And when his predictions failed, how would he respond? When his predictions failed, who was, who was in the wrong? Was it Cotton Mathers? Oh, no. It was you dirty, rotten, lazy, scoundrel people in the church. If you did more to evangelize, you would do more to usher in the return of Christ. Thankfully, the Great Awakening, we have the Great Awakening and Jonathan Edwards. There was revival in the new land. The preaching of Whitfield, the preaching of the Wesleys, uh, 
and certainly the influence of Jonathan Edwards. Many people consider Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards to be the last Puritan. He wrote books such as Some Thoughts Concerning the Present Revival of Religion, and he wrote famously Religious Affections, which helped to shape theological thinking about the revivals. And he saw the church as on the verge of entering into a day of glory through the preaching of revivals. He believed in the means, believed in the means of preaching. And unlike the Mathers, he saw the church as becoming stronger and pure. He was optimistic. And he saw the millennium as more spiritual than physical. I don't claim to be an expert on Edwards. I haven't read a lot of Edwards. I've, I've tried. It's difficult. Um, we'll leave that to Travis. He seems to enjoy it. Uh, John Elliott is noteworthy. He was a missionary in Massachusetts to the Native Americans who were there. Uh, he spent time evangelizing those of the Algonquian language, I think is how you say it, Algonquian. He established what he called praying towns in Nantic, Massachusetts, as early as 1651. And he viewed the Native Americans, get this, as Hebrews, descendants from the lost ten tribes of Israel. And so in his work, he saw himself as gathering in lost Jews to usher in the millennium. He translated the Bible into the native language, Algonquian. And this was actually, according to what the book indicated, was the first Bible translated in the New World, in the Americas. Sadly, the colonists and the other Native Americans viewed these praying Indians as enemies. And they would wipe out their praying towns and enact genocide against those Christian Native Americans who had converted. Um, John Elliott is to be commended, though, uh, not only for his translation work, but even his evangelization, uh, remarkable courage, even in the face of physical danger as he would go to these Native American groups to share the gospel with them. But he did so with a a great hope, a great expectation that he was doing God's work in establishing, uh, bringing forth the millennial reign of Christ. So what are some of the practical influences of this optimism? Well, number one, it motivated preaching, motivated the preaching of the word. The optimism was never separated from the ordinary means of grace. So they were fervent and zealous in their preaching. Why? Jesus is going to return soon. What an admirable thing. What a great thing to, to have a preacher stand in the pulpit and to be fervent in his preaching and committed to his preaching because he sees the days as growing short and sees the importance of God using preaching as a means to purify his church 
the bride of Christ in preparation for Christ's return. May all God's preachers have such a conviction as they stand in the pulpits. Amen. Number two, it motivated world missions. Motivated world missions. They undertook efforts to evangelize uh, Jews and Native Americans. The strong conviction to go and to share the gospel, that Jesus was going to return soon, that the church needed to increase, and that God would use world missions as a means to bring that forth to an end. What a wonderful and a noble desire to go and share the gospel before Christ returns. Number three, it motivated people to avoid the sins of England. They rejected a monarch as head of the church and sought to work with the state to be a city on a hill and a light for the nations. They wanted to see just and upright laws and the state, um, you might even say, establish a pure and true religion in the new world. I've heard this called the establishment principle. It's a noble thing, I think, a, a, a righteous desire to see the state recognize uh, a true religion and protect the peace and purity of the church. What a good thing and a noble desire. Fourthly, it motivated personal piety. They committed themselves especially to prayer. The, the American Puritans were men and women of prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer that God might use them and to bring forth his plan in, in the day in which they lived. And it motivated hope. Even when the church was persecuted and imperfect, they held the faith that Jesus had conquered sin and death and would continue to do so. So let me ask you this. What can we learn from the Puritans' optimism in the church today? Where does the church need a little more optimism? Nick? A hope that the church will persevere, right? Amen. What a good desire. What else? He's conquered death. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Gina Marie? Kindness and love. Yeah, absolutely. How about a confidence in the preaching of the gospel? How about a confidence in the means of grace that God has established, that he will be faithful to it? How about a confidence in sharing your faith, knowing that God would be pleased to use your testimony as a shining witness that would bring others to faith, to the Lord? 
right? We all need this kind of optimism. What about the optimism that Christ will enable the church to persevere through every trial and every tribulation and that he will always have a preserved remnant on the earth to worship him until he comes back again? What great optimism. That's, that's admirable. And I've reflected on this. This is the means that the Lord used for these men to come and establish the new world. Right? Were it not for these convictions, the Americas would have been established probably differently. It's reading into a little bit of provenance, but, you know, been about 300 years. I think it's safe. Yeah. Any other questions? Josh? Yeah. Yeah, the the historicist view and its connection to the futurist view, I think that the difference is the historicist sees the present day and age in which they live in and revelation unfolding in the present day. So the futurist would hold that forth for the day to come, a day to come. And by the way, I think all four views have strengths and weaknesses, by the way. I think they all have strengths and weaknesses. And I think that our study of Revelation can be benefited by all of them, believe it or not. Yeah. Although I tend towards a little more idealism, but I'm becoming more optimistic than I was before. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you will build your church and that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We thank you for the great confidence that gives us in your promises. Lord, instill us with great optimism. Instill us with an eternal hope that you will be faithful to the means you've appointed, that you will bless your word as it is preached all across this world. And we long for the day when your kingdom is realized um, on earth as it is in heaven, and the glory of God covers the, the world as the waters cover the sea. Be with us now as we enter into a time of worship unto you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.